Please turn to Luke 14 in your Bible, and I should add as well, I meant to mention earlier, we will not be taking the Lord's Supper to get together today, we will again next week, that was a, uh, just a minor oversight, we kind of got off track in a couple of different ways, and if you want to know the details of that, you can ask about it, but it's not important. But it, <clears throat> what is important is that you take your Bible and turn to Luke 14, and if you need a Bible, there should be one under a seat near you, or you can go to the back table, and there are a few there as well. So Luke is one of four historical accounts of the life of Jesus, and we're working through this book uh, uh, week by week, passage by passage, taking some larger passages right now. We'll slow it back down a little bit later on in the fall, but for now, taking about a chapter a week. And uh, this book, the, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, came to accomplish God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And at this point in Luke, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be crucified for the sins of us as sinners. That was very repetitive. For us as he was going to be crucified for sins. There we go. Uh, But uh, what he's doing as he lays out, as Luke lays out this book, is he's shown us what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So I'm going to read the first part of Luke 14, verses 1 through 6 for now, and then we'll read each section later on in the, in, the past, in the sermon. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. On May 13, 1940, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave his first speech to the House of Commons in his new role as the Prime Minister. And he famously told them that day, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. That may not have been the we're going to win really soon speech that people there that day wanted to hear, that the soldiers and leaders and citizens of Britain wanted to hear, but it was a realistic and honest assessment of what they had before them. It was a truth and advertising kind of speech, we could say. Perhaps when you signed up for your job or program of study, you didn't know what was ahead of you. You didn't know what was expected of you completely. You didn't know what was going to be in store for you on the weekends or when you were on call. And so perhaps you're You've been surprised by a particular challenge that has come your way that you didn't bank on when you signed up for that job or that program of study. Many people are surprised by the difficulties involved in the commitments that they make. And our passage makes it clear today that there are some surprises in following Jesus. Or maybe it shouldn't be surprising to us, but it often does surprise us that following Jesus is difficult. That for those who would follow Jesus, there is struggle and conflict and difficulty. To put it most simply, we could say that this passage tells us that Jesus surprises us with his expectations. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is what you should expect, and it's not always comfortable, unfortunately. But if we would follow him, we must do so on his terms. So what does Jesus do in this passage that surprises us? 
What does he lay out that surprises us, those of us who would seek to follow him faithfully with our lives? The first is in verses 1 through 6, Jesus denounces legalistic standards. Jesus denounces legalistic standards. There are a lot of different ways we could look at this passage. We could look at the power he has in healing miracles. We've seen that over and over and over again in Luke. We could look at the authority he has over the Sabbath day. We've seen that a few times in Luke as well. But particularly here, he seems to be responding to these religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, these people who knew the Jewish law well, the Old Testament law well, and had made it their life to not only study it, but also to try and enforce it. And here they are surprised that Jesus seems to not care about what Sabbath laws include. So in verse 1, we read that Jesus is dining, probably by the invitation of this ruler who, who would have then invited him and uh, wanted him up close. They, they had heard about what he'd been doing. They had seen him out in public. But here, let's get him in one of our houses and investigate whether he is who he says he is and whether he's really fulfilling all that he said he would come to do. And they're watching him carefully, much the way that people would watch you know, Queen Elizabeth. When she would go out in public, all eyes were on her. When you go to a wedding and the bride starts to walk down the aisle, everybody's eyes turn and they're carefully watching. It looks like the bride is almost floating down the aisle and everybody's watching her. And here they were carefully watching Jesus, but it was in a far more suspicious way, most likely. It doesn't exactly say that, but but you get this sense that they were wanting to see if they could catch him in something that he said or something that he did that they could then criticize him for and say, see, we told you he's not really who he said he was. He's not really the Messiah. They wanted to point out anything he did wrong. Well, what he did wrong was notice that there was someone in the room, perhaps who followed Jesus in because they had heard that Jesus had healed other people. And this person had a physical condition that regardless of of exactly what drops he was, it probably has to do with swelling of the arms and the legs, things like that, probably often due to congestive heart failure or something very significant like that. What Jesus did was notice that this was going on and showed compassion to him. As we saw in our passage last week, Jesus is always compassionate. And Jesus responds to this person being there. It says that he responded to the lawyer. So it makes us ask the question, did they confront him and say, so what are you going to do, Jesus? Is it lawful? And Jesus turns the question right around. Maybe they didn't ask him a question. He just responded to the fact, here's somebody in need. You're all staring at me, kind of checking to see what I'm going to do about this. Let me respond to that by just asking you, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What are they supposed to say? This is kind of a lose-lose situation. If they answer one way, it looks like you're a heartless pig. No, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And there are, as I said last week, there are zero Old Testament laws that would condemn healing on the Sabbath. What the lawyers, the Pharisees, the law, lawyers as in studying the law of God, the Old Testament law, what they had done was said, okay, so this is where God says this is true and this is what is right and wrong, but we want to make sure we don't ever cross that line, so let's add an extra line to it. And that way, if we cross this line, then we're in trouble because we're getting too close to that line. And so this is pharisaical. This is hypocritical. This is legalistic, we could say. And so all that to say, they could, they could answer one way and say, yes, it's illegal to, answer, to heal someone on the Sabbath. Well, now it looks like you're a compassionless jerk, basically. If you answer the other way, it looks like Jesus is right, and now you're on the wrong side of things with your other Pharisees. And so maybe some of these other Pharisees sitting there are saying, I'm not going to say anything because it's going to make me look bad in front of my friends. 
But Jesus goes on the offensive here. says, is it lawful to heal or not? They remain silent. They have nothing to say. So Jesus healed him and sent him away. And the man surely went on rejoicing, though Luke doesn't tell us that. He certainly does in many other instances. Jesus asks, if you had a, a child or an ox that's fallen in the well, are you really going to leave that person till the next day? Some of you may remember, I mean, this goes back 80s, I have to say at least. Baby Jessica, who fell in a well, I think in Texas, if I remember right. Some of you probably remember that. This little girl, toddling around her yard, falls into a well. If that had been on a Sabbath day and you're living under Old Testament law, should you really just leave her until the next day? No. That would be heartless, cruel, uncompassionate, the opposite of what Christ calls us to be. And Jesus is just pointing out the foolishness of this position that the Pharisees have created. But the fact that they could not reply to these things, that they didn't say, wow, that's amazing, Jesus, we're going to follow you, it just shows their hardness of heart. And all of us begin our lives, this is what the doctrine of sin teaches us, all of us begin our lives opposed to God with that very hardness of heart. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to make us alive because we are naturally hard of heart. And no one can soften their own heart toward God. It takes a work of God to do that. And so you could just ask, why did these people remain silent? Well, spiritually speaking, it's because they had a hard heart. Maybe socially speaking, they saw the stupidity of their view. They saw the social pressure of the situation. And they didn't want to seem like they agreed with Jesus. But we as disciples must celebrate Jesus' authority even over the Sabbath day. We celebrate his authority because he perfectly fulfilled the law. And so we don't earn God's favor by adding other legalistic standards to our lives. We do what God says to do and we don't seek to subtract from it, and we don't seek to add to it either. You're not more spiritual if you add more laws than God has given you. Yes, sometimes we want to be very specific in the applications we make of God's laws, but if we say something that goes beyond what Scripture says, that is when we get into legalism, and that is what this passage is denouncing. Jesus denounces legalistic standards. Secondly, we'll see in verses 7 through 11, that Jesus demands humility. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus demands humility. We see in this brief story here, the the word invited five different times. So this is clearly focusing on this kind of a story that Jesus is laying out here. And perhaps as he gathered in this Pharisee's home that day, he noticed that the Pharisees were kind of jostling for position amongst each other about who was going to sit where at the table. There was, in this society, it was very clearly laid out what the most important spots were. And then if you were down on this, on these ends of the table, clearly you're not an important person. This is not surprising to us. We can picture this kind of thing in our own day. If you go to a rehearsal dinner and who is seated at the head table, who's seated further back in the room, you figure that they're probably not as close to the bride and the groom. Same thing if you work in an important office setting and you know that there's this guest 
who's going to be there in a, in, at a particular day, perhaps the president of the company, and you get invited to go to that lunch, and they say, come up here and sit next to this guy. Well, that means you're kind of an important person in that setting. So all that to say, we understand what's going on here from a social perspective. But Jesus noticed that these people were jostling for position with one another and said, don't do it that way. Go to the back of the line. Go to the furthest seats away from, from the head of the table and that way you won't face the embarrassment, the social stigma of having to be moved away because somebody more important than you comes to the table. That would be humiliating to experience that. But what I want to point out here is that Jesus is far less concerned with where people sat at banquets 2,000 years ago and where they sat at feasts than he was with telling them the kind of posture that a follower of Jesus must have, must embody. Of course, you don't want to be humiliated publicly. But far worse is being humiliated on the last day when you stand before God and your arrogant heart is on full display before Him. Perhaps you can think of other people in the Bible who exalted themselves. I mean, we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. What was Goliath doing? He was taunting people. He was even taunting God Himself. And that's why David intervened and said, no, I'm not going to stand by while someone's mocking God in ruthless pride. Perhaps you can think of Saul or Absalom, other stories in First and Second Samuel like this. Perhaps you can think of Nebuchadnezzar, a king who was terribly arrogant, so arrogant that he created a statue of himself 90 feet high, telling everybody in the kingdom to bow down before it. He was an arrogant person, and he was deeply humbled, as the book of Daniel goes on to tell us. The king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 was marked by wicked arrogance. Pride is condemned from beginning to end in the Bible, but it is very present in our hearts. And I'll tell you, at at times you meet someone, even in ministry, even other pastors, who you interact with them and you say, man, I want nothing to do with that guy. What a jerk. And that is simply not how we as Christians should be marked. If Jesus demands humility, perhaps you'd be asking then, how do I develop this this gift? Truly, humility is a gift. It is a, a mark of God's grace in our lives. So the first thing I would encourage you to do, I'll give you four suggestions, and you can probably multiply this list multiple times over. Meditate on how kind God has been to you. Your life would be drastically different if you had been born at a different place, all right? Different country, different social structure. At a different time in human history, your life would be drastically different. So meditate on how kind God has been to you and giving you the family He's given you, the social setting you've been born in and and raised in, and just simply meditate on how kind God has been in His providence. Secondly, memorize a book of the Bible. And I add this one on here because I think the content of what you're memorizing then would humble you, and the process of trying to memorize a book of the Bible would also humble you. And so I encourage you to to soak in Scripture, whether it just be by regular reading or by by uh, memorizing or meditating on it. Third, reflect on the cross of Christ, which takes you back to the doctrine of sin and how wicked you are and how much you deserve the just wrath of God for your sin. So reflect on the cross of Christ and on the sin that Christ came to forgive. And fourth, very practically, it would be something like serving at a homeless shelter or at a low-income school or at a low-income nursing home where people simply cannot do much for themselves and you have the skills, you have the energy, you have the strength to help them. These are ways that we can grow in the grace of humility by the kindness of the Lord. 
So secondly, first of all, Jesus denounces legalistic standards. Secondly, Jesus demands humility. In our third section here, Jesus welcomes the outcast. Jesus welcomes the outcast. Follow along as I read verses 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus welcomes the outcast. So in our first section here, we see Jesus himself at a dinner. And while he's at that dinner, he tells them what to do if you are attending that dinner. And now he tells you what to do if you're hosting that dinner and people are not showing up. And again, I tell you, uh, Jesus is less concerned with how to throw a banquet than he is with telling you what it looks like to minister to other people around you, to embody the virtues that are required of faithful following of Jesus. Have you noticed, though, that if God invites the outcasts and He invited you, how kind He has been to you. Meditate on how much the Lord has uh, done for you in inviting you a spiritually helpless person, someone who has no sense, apart from God's work in your life, of how needy you are for Him, But he has welcomed you. He has invited you. Verse 14 mentions that perhaps when you welcome people who are unable to send you a thank you note or to invite you to their home themselves, perhaps you're never going to be thanked for this kind of a ministry. But you will be thanked on the last day. You will be repaid on the last day. He mentions this resurrection of the just. You may be asking, what in the world is the resurrection of the just? What we need to remember is that the Bible regularly lays out the fact that the life we are in is preparation for the next life, okay? You are living in a long preparation, however long your life is, that's a long preparation for a much longer life. This is the, the, the worldview that the Bible lays out for us, that we are living in, in between two worlds. We're, yes, we're living here, but we're living with our eye to the next world in everything that we do. And so, who are the just described here and why are they resurrected? What it's talking about is all those who will go to heaven, all those who will receive eternal life. And this phrase that that comes up in verse 15, that everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom, 
That's simply another way of saying all those who will receive forgiveness of sins, all those who will have eternal life, all those who have repented and believed. It's another way that Luke gives us of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, someone who will eat at the eternal feast in God's kingdom. But that, that phrase, the resurrection of the just, begs the question, who is the just? Because I can tell you, I am not a just person. I am not a righteous person. And I think if we all examine our own hearts and look at the nastiness in our hearts, we would have to agree. I'm not a just person, which makes me ask, am I going to be at that resurrection? Am I going to be able to feast in the kingdom of God? And the Bible answers the question of who is the just one as being who has put their trust in Christ alone, who has received the righteousness of God. This is the most important question you could ever possibly ask yourself. Do I have the righteousness of God? Well, the question that then comes is, how do I get the righteousness of God? And the book of Romans is especially clear, say Romans 5 and Romans 8. We receive the righteousness of God by faith, not because of anything we do. We want to think, we want to imagine that we get to add you know, jewels to our crown of God's love for us by doing good things for other people, by feeding the poor, by memorizing a book of the Bible, by whatever the other ways we want to pursue that. Those things don't make us right with God. You can be the nicest person in the world and experience the wrath of God forever because you are not right with Him, because you have put your, your hope in what you do rather than what Christ has done. And so if you're here today and you have never put your hope in Christ alone, we would urge you to do that now. Now is the day of salvation. And this Pharisee in verse 15 clearly thought he was going to be in the kingdom of God. And basically Jesus lays out for him only those who are willing to acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Those who are willing to acknowledge that they themselves are spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame. These people make pretty terrible excuses, though, about whether they should come to, God's, or come to this feast that, that Jesus lays out in this parable here. Things like, I, I just bought land, I need to go look at it. You would have already looked at it if you bought it. Well, I just bought five pairs of oxen, I need to go make sure they're all healthy. You would have made sure they were healthy before you bought them. Or I just got married. You should still come anyway, is basically what Jesus is laying out here. But you know what? We make similar excuses in our own lives. Like, sorry, my wife, or you know, my, my daughter has a, has a travel game, can't, can't be there. Or my neighbor asked me to watch their cat, so I can't come to church. How does that affect anything? I need to mow my yard. Okay, fine. There's an afternoon. There's a Saturday afternoon as well. But what Jesus does here is it shows the, the foolishness of all those who would turn away from this free invitation that God lays out for us. And this is why he tells us to compel people to come in. Go out to the highways and hedges. That means go as far as you need to go and find the people who maybe are even undesirable to spend time with and invite them, compel them, vigorously invite them to come in. This is not talking about forcing people to convert. You can force people to convert to Islam. We can't force a spiritual work of God in people's lives. We can lay the truth out over and over again. This is what we try to do with our children, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we cannot compel them 
to become believers. It's not a science where if we create just the right environment, you know, you have a loving home, you take them to church every Sunday, you teach them a certain Bible story every week, you go through these processes. And then in a worship service, you play just the right music with just the right lighting and you use just the right tone of voice. And then you accomplish some spiritual work. That's not how it works. How it works is the Spirit of God takes spiritually dead people and makes them spiritually living people as they come to respond to the Word of God. And so what I just want to tell you is that you have an opportunity. You have been invited to this feast. You, have, you can acknowledge your own poverty, the fact that you are crippled and blind and lame. And you can be, be received into the open arms of the Lord who welcomes the outcast. Jesus denounces legalistic standards, demands humility, welcomes the outcast, and finally, in verses 25 through 35, he clarifies the cost. Verse 25, Jesus clarifies the cost of following him. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross And come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus clarifies the cost. So you have many people following Jesus. Maybe now he's left this this banquet going back on his way toward Jerusalem as we've seen multiple times in Luke so far. And he tells this crowd, you're going to have to recognize that following me could cost you everything. This is what he says when he says that you may need to lose family relationships. You may need to be willing to even give up your own life. You might need to pass up a promotion in order to faithfully follow me. You might have people who think that you're weird if you hold Christian beliefs. If you go to church regularly, people might, might uh, assume that it'd be easier to be a Christian in name only uh, rather than, than having to go through all this. <clears throat> but Jesus is simply saying, there's a cost involved in following me. There might be family members who say, I want nothing to do with you because you're following Jesus. This happens especially in some Middle Eastern cultures and some African cultures and so on. But it could perhaps happen in your life as well. You might need to lose your best friend. You might need to lose your job to follow Jesus faithfully. And this is why when we, when we read a passage like this, and I'm not going to go through this line by line necessarily, but when we read a passage like this, this is why we don't baptize spontaneously. All right, so you have someone who walks in, they profess faith in Christ, they say, I want to be baptized. My response to them is, great, let's talk about that. Same thing I would say to my own children. Let's talk about that some more. 
Because we don't want to give somebody what we could consider to be something like a stamp of approval on their profession of faith if there's no way to tell if that profession has any validity to it. Okay? We, we, we seek to baptize in a Baptist church those who have put their faith in Christ and can give a credible evidence of, profe- of faith. How do you tell if it's credible if you don't watch it for at least a little bit of time? And so this is why we don't baptize spontaneously. This is why we take membership carefully. We have a class. We have you fill out some paperwork. We interview you. We do these things because we want to be careful about who comes into our church, just like you want to be careful about whether you want to come into our church in the first place. And so there's just some truth in advertising in this. You may need to be willing to lose your family, your closest friends, or your reputation if you follow Jesus. You need to be willing to endure suffering, loss, and even death. Verse 27 sounds different to us than it would have sounded when Jesus said these words initially to this crowd. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To us in our day, I mean, if you have a bulletin, there's a cross on the front of our logo, right? We see crosses Everywhere you go, so there, if you haven't noticed it, there's a cross in the middle of our logo there. You might have a cross hanging from your mirror in your car. You might have a cross, you know, bookmark in your Bible. We have crosses all over in our culture. But in the culture in which Jesus said this, the cross was like us celebrating a noose or an electric chair. Like, this is just not something you publicly display and talk a lot about. In the first century, uh, particularly in first century Rome, and Jerusalem here was under Roman control, which is why Jesus was crucified, why, the, why he faced a Roman execution, the very mention of a cross or of crucifixion was considered out of bounds. Cicero, this Roman order, one of the great orders of Roman history, said not to even think about it because it was so disgusting. It shouldn't even cross your minds. Crucifixion was extremely painful, but even more, it was humiliating. One author said, To be impaled naked before the watching world was as undignified an end as the Romans could devise, and the shame was a large part of the point. Corpses cut down from the cross would routinely be cast into a ditch to be pecked at by birds and eaten by dogs. Those crucified were garbage. The cross was the slave's punishment. Certain classes of people couldn't even be crucified because they were too high up the social ladder. If you're a slave, though, that's what you deserve, they would say. Certain classes could be crucified. Certain classes could not. It was either an appropriate or an un- it was either appropriate to crucify or an unspeakable evil, depending on who was on the cross. To see someone crucified was to watch their unpersoning, this author said and to hear the message, do not go the way of this wretch. That's what it meant to be crucified. That's horrifying. That's disgusting. And Jesus is saying, you need to be willing to take up your cross. Let's just cut through it. What does that even mean? You need to be willing to die if you're going to follow me, because it might come down to that. And for many of these disciples who were right in that crowd, that's exactly what happened to them. They themselves faced brutal torture. Perhaps you could read a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs if you want to read more stories about these. And perhaps you don't want to read more stories about these, these terrible kinds of crimes that people have done against Christians because of their faith in Christ. But simply, let me just ask you, how would you respond if someone that you deeply love stopped following Jesus? How would you respond? 
And I've told my wife, and you know, hopefully this never comes down to this, but I said, I've told her, if, if I ever need to be church disciplined, I've done some horrific sin and I'm unrepentant over it, please vote against me. Please do what is right. Follow Christ, even if it means that there's tremendous tension in our home. Because what, that's the way she can love me the best. She loves me the best when she follows Christ the hardest. And so, if I'm ensnared in the deceitfulness of sin, I would ask you to do the same thing. Follow hard after Christ alone. Perhaps it sounds extreme to us that we might have to be willing to lay down our lives to follow Christ. Again, we live in a place we have religious freedom here in America. Praise God. What a blessing. Most of our fellow brothers and sisters around the world don't have that privilege. And for them, they very well may have to give their lives and face the shame of the world because of their following Christ. And so we want to pray for them, but we also need to realize that sometimes the the hard things that we deal with are just the social stigma of holding to Christian beliefs and standards. The fact that we go to church as regularly as we do, and we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? This passage would say, yes, it is worth it. There is a cost, but there is a reward as well. But you have to decide that for yourselves. The section about counting the cost here, where you have somebody who's deciding whether they have enough money before they build a building or deciding whether they have enough soldiers before they go out into war. This is simply saying you need to deliberate whether it's a good idea to go down this road. You're not going to run a marathon spontaneously. At least I don't recommend it. You're going to end up in a hospital if you do. I don't recommend you get married spontaneously. So don't decide to follow Jesus spontaneously. All right? I I seriously mean that. Take a cost-benefit analysis. Am I willing to pay what it's going to cost to follow Jesus. J.C. Ryle, a British pastor of a previous century, wrote in his book, Holiness, it costs something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a person in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It's the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Simply put, you will be of no use to Christ if you do not follow him on his terms. And that's what these last two verses about this salt that has lost its saltiness. There were some impurities in the salt, and particularly in the salt they were getting from the Dead Sea. And after the good part of the salt has been used up, then you have this, this worthless part. It's of no good whatsoever. It's just thrown away. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me and you're not willing to count the cost, it's worthless. Don't even try. This is a warning against being a worthless disciple, one who has no value to proclaiming Christ because you've lost the attributes that actually show that you're a Christian in the first place. Our missionary Tim Cassie writes in his book, A Company of Heroes. As Christ continued to build his church in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, speaking specifically of the 1960s, especially that time frame, congregations grew, and with that, the pressing need for Bibles grew too. The famine for the bread of the word was acute, and believers on both sides of the Iron Curtain responded. In 1967, the story of a Dutch evangelist known as Brother Andrew, who actually just died this past week, Brother Andrew was published. God's Smuggler, in the name of this book, was a sensation and inspiration as it described how Bibles were taken behind the Iron Curtain in Brother Andrew's Volkswagen. Of course, his remarkable story was just one of many such stories. Hundreds of men and women who never had a bestseller were also involved in smuggling Bibles and Christian literature. 
Most of them were not from the West, but were Poles, Romanians, Lithuanians, Russians, and Ukrainians. They risked and many lost their freedom in order to print and smuggle Bibles to Christians. Printing presses were cobbled together from parts of washing machines and bicycles. Quantities of paper and ink had to be secured. Every step in making a book had to be done secretly. Printing, collating, folding, stitching, trimming. And that was before the Bibles were even given to the couriers. These brave men and women sometimes carried heavy loads of books on trains or buses, traveling hundreds of miles day and night, all while they watched and prayed and played a high-risk cat-and-mouse game with the KJB. To follow Jesus, in other words, does involve a cost, but also a reward. It may cost you your life, your reputation, your most precious relationships, but the reward of eternal enjoyment of God in a life with no pain and suffering or death. In other words, you get life as it was meant to be. That's the reward for following Christ. If you're already following Christ in this way, however imperfectly as we all do, I just simply want to encourage you to keep going, to keep following, to keep enduring the cost and enduring the pain. We urge you to follow Jesus on His terms, giving thanks for His forgiveness of your sins, for His call on your life, and asking Him for the grace to go one more day of following Him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we want to honor You. You are the true God, and so we bow before You. And we ask you to use our short lives to honor you all the way to the end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.